All right. Good morning, beloved. Feel like I might have to start coming in like a, a, a gym workout suit and change out. And <laughs> I want to uh, invite you this morning to please turn in your Bibles to First Peter, chapter one. First Peter, chapter one. If you're new to, with us, we've been going verse by verse through this um, incredible introduction. These first twelve verses that opens the letter of First Peter. Today, we'll be essentially finishing up this wonderful opening section in verses 10 through 12. Um, Peter's theme throughout his introduction has been salvation. Salvation. And he begins this all the way back in essentially verse 3. As this is all just one long run-on sentence in the Greek that we've basically broken up into three separate sermons. Verses 3 through 5 was all about praising God and blessing God for this incredible, awesome salvation. Last week in verses 6 through 9 was a reminder of the joy we have in our salvation. Salvation joy is throughout the scriptures. And then in today's verses, verses 10 through 12, Peter reminds his readers of just how great of a salvation they have in Christ. And there's a number of means that he uses to demonstrate how great of a salvation, almost witnesses, if you will, testifying to how incredible the salvation is. But to start this morning, I just want to read, and I want to begin back in verse 6. I won't bring you all the way back to verse 3, but just so we can pull in um, some more of the full context to all Peter is speaking to here in our verses today. So, 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to begin in verse 6. And this is the word of the living and true God. In this, this salvation, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who, who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Even in the English, that is a mouthful. It's like Peter can't cram enough about this salvation into these verses. So here, though, today, in verses 10 through 12, we have another incredibly rich passage of Scripture from the Apostle Peter as he once again focuses on this great salvation we have in Christ. And he begins his epistle this way to remind his audience, these persecuted believers, that they may not be the chosen of the world, but they are the chosen of God. And though they have grieved through various trials, he wants to remind his readers to focus on that one beautiful reality of their salvation. Is there any word in the English language as hopeful or comforting or as assuring as salvation? Salvation is the greatest theme in all of Scripture. You know what the uh, Bible says? We are by nature children of wrath, born dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. 
And because man is guilty of sin, he's headed for eternal judgment. Man desperately needs to be rescued from that. He needs to be saved. And the Bible makes it very clear that by his own works, he cannot save himself. Romans 6 tells us what our wages are. What is due us for the sin that our nature has? The wages of sin, Romans 6.23, is death. That's what's owed to us. That's what we deserve. Death. But remember, God is not only just, he is also rich in mercy. And though the wages of sin is death, the good news is the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God can and will rescue from combination whosoever believes in him. Peter said in Acts chapter 10, verse 43, through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. The Apostle Paul who wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, this, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So not only does he love sinners, but he alone is able to save them. A glorious verse is in Psalm chapter 3, verse 8, that says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is his to give. Only he has the power to save. And furthermore, God is not willing that any should perish. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but in long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says, He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Above all, salvation is according to God's sovereign plan and purpose. For as Paul reminded Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, He saved us. He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. <laughs> I mean, this stuff above the pay grade of us mere humans, this stuff is fantastic. But when we look at salvation, no matter how difficult we're putting the lens of this life on and the trials and tribulations that we may be going through, we should never stop rejoicing over how great of a salvation we have in Christ. Psalm 96 verse 2 says, Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. This should be the passion of those who have been saved, redeemed, forgiven, not by what I have done, but by his gracious mercy. And this is really a practical great reminder for all of us as we go through this world and, and rub against the things of this world when everything in life isn't going eh, quite the way maybe that you had imagined or hoped it would be. We go back to this point, the point of our salvation and we praise God for the greatest gifts that he could ever give, our eternal salvation. Our eternal salvation. So that's been Peter's theme of this glorious truth to these persecuted believers. This is why he begins with this great, huge introduction and just keeps mounting on top of one truth and another, the glorious salvation that have in Christ. Yes, you may have difficulties. You may be going through various trials and are grieved. But you are chosen by God. You are God's elect. You may feel like the dispersion, that you are a foreigner, 
in this world. Have we not all felt like that at some point? I just don't belong here. That's the thing that God put in our heart. And he says, yeah, you're a temporary alien here. You're a resident. Don't put your roots too far down in the ground here. I have something in eternity for you. That's what I created you for. Now, as we turn our attention to these verses 10 through 12, you're going to find this so fascinating because I, of course, did. And he approaches this great salvation from the viewpoint of four divine agents, I'll call them, who were involved in bring, bringing this salvation message. The Old Testament prophets, the Holy Spirit, the New Testament apostles, and the angels. The angels. So you'll see those outlined in your notes. But let's begin with number one. As salvation was the theme of the prophet's search. Or you could say of the prophet's study. This is really something else. Notice what it says in verse 10 and then in the first part of verse 11. As to this salvation, and he's referring back to the salvation of your souls, just mentioned in verse 9. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time. And we'll stop right there. The prophets Peter is referring to here is God's Old Testament prophets. They were God's spokesmen in the Old Testament. Verse 10, prophesied of the grace that would come. And notice what they did with their own prophecies. They made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time. This is just so fascinating to me. The prophets literally studied their own writings, their own prophetic writings to understand all they could about this promised salvation, this coming Messiah, the Christ. Now, think of it. All the truth that you might have studied um, or the, the truth that they would have studied, um, why might they be so preoccupied with this? Because salvation is the greatest theme in all of Scripture. The entire Bible, right after sin comes in in Genesis 3, is built on a promise after a promise after another promise. God's promise of the coming seed. The promised one who would come to rectify the sin. And so the entire rest of the book is either talking about, describing, pointing to, teaching the realities of this salvation. And at the cross of the New Testament, those Old Testament realities become even more full in the person of Christ, in the incarnation. But in the Old Testament time, before Christ, B.C., they, they were preoccupied with this whole theme of salvation, which is greater than the salvation. Um, th this salvation is, let me say it this way, greater. And let me unpack this for you. Um, all the truth that the prophets received was through divine revelation. Um, the truth of salvation was really their greatest passion that they received from God. Um, and this was the pursuit of the Old Testament prophets. From Moses to Malachi, all the Old Testament prophets who spoke for God spoke of this coming salvation. So Peter says, they made careful searches and inquiries. They knew they were writing about salvation. And so they studied their own writings to figure out what person or time. Who are we writing about? When is this going to take place? And they say, well, weren't they re the recipients of salvation? Yes, yes. But even though they have received salvation, mark this, they received it not having fully seen its accomplishment, right? You understand this. They received the gift of salvation without ever seeing or knowing the Savior, the Lord 
Jesus Christ. They received the gift of salvation without ever seeing or even fully understanding all that would be involved in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He hadn't come yet. It hadn't happened yet. B.C. So they received salvation just like we do today. By faith, they were still saved. It's just Christ hadn't come yet. And they were saved through faith in what had been revealed to them thus far. And the prophets came and kept revealing more about this promised Messiah who was going to come. And so they didn't have the full benefit of seeing the accomplishment of what Christ did. Imagine in their position. Hebrews has a lot of interesting things that explain this for us a lot better than I could. Hebrews 11 verse 13 says, all these, and this is, you know, Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, all the great patriarchs of the faith, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them, what? From a distance, from far off, with pictures and descriptions and images and foreshadows of the blood, the atonement, the lamb of Christ, of the promised one who would come. They all died. They died in faith. And then continue down in verse 39. It says, and all these, having gained approval, they were approved through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Listen to this, verse 40. Because God had provided something better for us. I mean, this is incredible. So that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. It wasn't revealed in their time, you see. They welcomed it, but from a distance. And this is staggering. But there's more to it than just that. A lot more to it. Because in these Old Testament prophecies, the promise of God was that this salvation to come was a salvation that would go way beyond Israel. You see. To all nations of the earth. And that redemption and deliverance would be brought by, would be provided through this Messiah. The Messiah would bring this into fruition. A prophet a priest king who was to come in the future who possessed an even greater grace to come. Or as verse 40 says it there in Hebrews 11, God had provided something better. <laughs> better, oh you bet. And the prophets were fascinated by this. They were fascinated by it. Notice that little phrase in 1 Peter 1 verse 10. The grace that would come. The subject of their intense study was this grace that would come. That word grace is an even bigger word than salvation. Salvation speaks about the act of saving, where grace speaks about the motive, the mercy the unmerited favor and blessing lavished on undeserving sinners. Grace really encompasses salvation. Grace. The grace that would come, beloved. And they're just so fascinated by this. And it would encompass every nation of every tongue around the entire world. What kind of grace were they writing about? What kind of God was this? Now, let me be quick to add, beloved. You must not think that because it says they prophesied of the grace that would come, that there was no grace in the Old Testament. That's a terrible 
error to make, and many people do make that error, assuming that the Old Testament was all law and no grace. But that just isn't true. God, by nature, is gracious, is he not? <laughs> the same God who is gracious in our age was gracious in their age, because that's who he is. That's who God is. He's gracious. God has always been gracious. He has always been unchanging, the same, and he has always been gracious. In fact, we can go all the way back to the book of Genesis to see this. For example, we read in Genesis chapter 6, before the flood, it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The very first book of the Bible, God's talking about grace. A lot of translations translate that favor. He's been favored. Grace. Something he did not earn. God was gracious and showed favor to Noah. Again in Genesis in, in 34, 43, excuse me, verse 29, it says, Then Joseph lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. So Noah and Joseph, the patriarchs, are fully aware that God is gracious. Moses was also fully aware of that grace. In fact, while recording the law, he demonstrates this in Exodus 22, 26 through 27. And when he writes, if you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, God says, for I am gracious. Again, in Exodus 33, verse 18 through 19, there's that incredible scene where Moses says to God, please just show me your glory. I just want a glimpse of your glory. Then God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In the very next chapter, it says 34, we see Moses climbing Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, replacing the two tablets that had been broken. And in verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. And these are just a few examples taken around the first books of the Old Testament. God has always been gracious. He has always been a God of grace. The Psalms is full of statements about the grace of God. Psalm 116, verse 5, for example. Gracious is the Lord and righteous, yes, our God is merciful. The very fact that God did not consume all of Israel for their disobedience in sin was an indication of God's grace. And then, for example, the prophet Jonah, who in chapter 4 prayed to the Lord, and he said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarkish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. You know why Jonah ran from God? He was afraid to preach to uh, the Ninevites. Do you know why? Because he thought God would save them. And he just could not stand the idea of Gentiles getting saved. It was repulsive to him. So he ran because he knew God was gracious. There was never any question in the Old Testament about whether God was gracious. He has always been gracious. It is who he is. But there was a surpassing grace to come, you see. And the manifestation of that grace would come with the arrival of God's Son, the Lord, Jesus Christ. This is what they prophesied about. And the prophets knew this. 
For example, the prophet Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 45, verse 20. Listen to what Isaiah says from the Lord. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge to carry about their wooden idols and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case indeed. Let them consult together. Who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me, verse 22, and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance, they will say of me, only in the Lord our righteousness and strength men will come to him. And all who are angry at him will be put to shame. Absolutely incredible. I mean, imagine Isaiah predicting nearly 3,000 years ago that every nation and every tongue will bow the knee to God and men will come to him. God's prophets never got to see that happen. Every nation, from every tongue, but they knew that it was all, it was all tied to the one who would come, the Messiah. So, the prophets were writing about a salvation grace to come that was far larger than anything that they had experienced. They were writing about this Messiah who would literally bring a salvation that would reach the ends of the earth. Now, how long it took to get information from just one village to the next? Days, sometimes weeks, depending on how far it was. Now, what was the substance of these prophecies? Um, what else did they convey other than this worldwide salvation, a salvation that would cover every tribe of every tongue? Well, we don't have all day, unfortunately, but let's hit on a couple of the main facts. When they prophesied about the Messiah and the grace of his salvation, they prophesied first that the Messiah must suffer. The Messiah must suffer. Psalm 22 details his crucifixion. Jesus quotes Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 16. They have pierced my hands and my feet. This was written before crucifixion was ever even being performed. I can count all of my bones, verse 17. That becomes prophetic. Isaiah 52 and 53, we all know that. It details the Lord's suffering, incredibly clear. 53, verse 2, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we would desire him. There was nothing special about the Messiah when he came. He did not come like a king with a crown and a robe and all these soldiers behind him and, and a throne and a castle and horses. He came lowly and low, a suffering servant. There was no form or majesty that we should even look at him. The prophet prophesied. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. So number one, the prophets clearly declared that the Messiah was to suffer. They knew from Zechariah that he would suffer. They knew from Daniel 9 that his life would be cut off. But number two, they also prophesied that the Messiah would triumph. That he would triumph. 
In Psalm 2, the psalmist says, God will set his King Jesus Christ on his holy hill Zion, where Christ will rule there with a rod of iron. Psalm 16, verse 10 says that God will not allow his Holy One to undergo decay. And we're going to see Peter preach this sermon later at Pentecost in Acts 2. In Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet declared, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. We just sang this. And his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it, establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. An everlasting kingdom. Now this is one of those dual prophecies. I'll have to preach a whole sermon on this verse someday, but the main point of Isaiah's prophecy is Messiah's kingdom coming from the line of King David will be an everlasting kingdom where there will be no end to it. And if you're wondering how long that is, he says in verse 7, from that time forward, even forever. Kingdoms rise and fell all the time. How is this Messiah going to have a kingdom that lasts forever? So the prophets prophesied a Messiah that would suffer, a Messiah that would triumph, and then thirdly, they prophesied a Messiah that would save. A Messiah that would save. And it's why Jesus in Luke 4, at the launch of his public ministry, went on the Sabbath into his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. And one of the attendants there gives him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And as he opens up the scroll, he reads these words right out of Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's a messianic prophecy of the coming Messiah who would save. Who would bind up the broken heart and proclaim liberty to the captives? And when he finishes reading Isaiah's prophecy, it tells us in Luke chapter 4, verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture, what scripture? Isaiah's scripture, has been fulfilled in your hearing. Why were their eyes so fixed on him? Because they knew this was a messianic prophecy. He was claiming to be the Messiah. But their hearts were hardened. And in Luke 4, instead of responding to him with a repentant heart, they said, is this not Joseph's son? The son of a carpenter? Our Messiah? King? The one from the line of the great King David? Him? In other words, this can't be the Messiah. And then scripture says they were filled with wrath, and a few verses after that, they're trying to kill Jesus by throwing him off of a cliff. But this is what the Old Testament prophets prophesied concerning the Messiah. That number one, the Christ would suffer. That number two, he would triumph. And then number three, he would be mighty to save. So they wrote all this. They prophesied all of this. So let's return back to 1 Peter then. And I want you to notice what he says at the end of verse 10. The prophets made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time they were writing about. Careful searches and inquiries. Those two words emphasize the intensity with which the prophets had delved into their own prophetic writings and the diligence with which they had investigated them to better understand the magnitude of this salvation that we have in Christ. 
They were consumed by this glorious subject, you see, of salvation. And beloved, I must ask, does this describe you? Do you inquire and carefully search the treasures of salvation in the scriptures? I mean, look how blessed we are. We are rich. We own these beautiful Bibles filled with both Old and the New Testaments, the full canon complete. Just about every Bible has its own Bible study in it with the magnitude of cross-reference verses they have. I mean, today Bibles are everywhere. Never mind, you can access it free right in your pocket with a phone if you need to. But beloved, do you realize this has not always been the case for Christians? We are blessed. For most of our history, you couldn't even get a complete Bible. Never mind, read it in your own language. We weren't even publishing it uh, until 700 or so years ago. These churches in Asia Minor that Peter is writing to would be blessed just to receive one copy, one scroll of this one letter from Peter to be read at a service. A scribe might be able to copy it before they passed it on to the next church to read and proclaim to the churches. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 13, 17, Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So the prophets made careful searches. It's a word intensified by the preposition to, uh, preposition to seek out, to exhaust all the elements to it, to, to fully understand it. They could only understand in part. It's why after they wrote it, they made careful searches and inquiries. And that's another strong compound verb, inquiries. It means, again, an intensive search, uh, an examination of the scriptures. The first term is a, a little bit more general. The second refers to uh, the minute process of carefully studying the scriptures. Every minute little detail. You might say it this way. The prophets of the Old Testament made it their life passion to study the great reality of salvation. It was their serious desire, a, a consuming passion this wasn't a scholarly investigation for the sake of information, but a passionate investigation for the sake of doxology, of, of praise, and of encouragement, and of hope. And there's a third reference to this, verse 11, seeking to know. You see that? Seeking to know. And again, this is another uh, uh, participle here, but it simply means to examine, to, to search. So, so here they are, three different words are used to describe the intensity of which the prophets search the scriptures, and what are they searching for? They know God is a savior, they know he'll provide salvation through grace, they know there will be a Messiah who will suffer, who will triumph, who will come and be the redeemer, but their question is, what person and what time? What person and what time? Who will this be, and when will he come? This was still going on with the last prophet. Who is technically the last prophet of the Old Testament? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Well, John's thinking was no different than any of the other prophets who came and testified to the Messiah and who he'd be and what he would say and what he would do. John was just like the rest of the prophets. And let me show you this example. In Matthew chapter 11, you, you know the story, well-known story. We've read it several times. John the Baptist is in prison, and so he sends a couple of his disciples to Jesus. And he says, through these messengers, are you the expected one? Or shall we look? For someone else. This, as we just heard Brendan read, was the one who testified, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John, what's going on? 
This was the question for all the prophets. Are you the one we've been looking for? You ask, but didn't John know who Jesus was? Well, he thought he did. But when things didn't go the way he expected them to go, and suddenly he's in prison, waiting for his head to be lopped off, John had questions. His questions came up again. This isn't what I was expecting. Is he the one? Or do, is there someone else coming? Because I thought there was going to be a kingdom. And I thought I was going to be next to him. I didn't think I was going to be in a prison cell getting ready to have my head chopped off. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? It was always who and when. Who and when. So they searched, and they searched, and they searched. Remind you again, Hebrews 11, verse 39. And all these, having gained approval through faith, through their faith, did not receive what was promised. I skipped one here. They all died before the promise was fulfilled, verse 40, because God says he will provide something better for us. Wow. Beloved, why should I focus on this great salvation? Because I have something better than even the prophets for whom this was a lifelong obsession for. So Peter says to these persecuted believers once again, look up and praise God for this great salvation the prophets could only dream about the blessings on this side of the cross and what it says in verse 10, the grace that would come to you. They knew it wasn't for them that they wrote these great prophecies for. They wrote about the grace that would come to you and to us now. The prophets knew that. It wasn't their time. They were writing something spectacular for people later. Isn't this amazing? We have this great salvation of grace, the full and errant full canon of Scripture. Um, no longer do we have to go to a place to experience God like a temple because God came to live in us in the person of His Son through the power of His Spirit. Well, that leads us to number two. I don't know if I had gone by it. There we go. Our second point is a lot shorter than the first. This salvation was the theme of the Spirit's inspiration. This salvation was the theme of the Spirit's inspiration. Now, why was it important to the prophets? Because it was important to the Holy Spirit who inspired them to write. <laughs> so notice, let's pick back up in verse 11. Now know this, the prophets were only prophesying because verse 11 tells us the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These are some incredible verses. Listen, everything that the prophets received, they received from whom? Holy Spirit. Everything the New Testament writers received, they received from who? The Holy Spirit. Yeah. Everything we read, whether it's in the Old Testament or our New Testament, is given by the Spirit of God. Now back to the beginning of verse 11. The prophets were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. There's two main themes that the Holy Spirit refers to in verse 11. The sufferings of Christ and the glory to follow. When we go into the Old Testament and we read Psalm 22, for example, the sufferings of Christ, it says, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. Uh, they make mouths at me. They, they wag their heads and, and fingers at me. And then the prophetic sarcasm in verse 8. This will be Christ on the cross. Look, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. 
Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So these are all pure evil in these verses, and they're everywhere. The prophet Isaiah, we just read a small portion of it, but Isaiah 52, verse 13, all the way to Isaiah 53, verse 12. It's all about the sufferings of Christ. Daniel 9, verse 26, the Messiah will be cut off. He'll have nothing. Zechariah 12, 10, this whom they will pierce. You remember Luke chapter uh, 24. You got these two uh, disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And uh, a few days after the crucifixion, they're talking about the things that had happened when suddenly Jesus draws near to them. And he's veiled their eyes. They don't know it is the Christ who has risen, who is walking beside these two disciples. The Bible says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And after walking for a while, Jesus said to them, verse 25, Oh, foolish men. And slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? There it is, the suffering and the glories. Then beginning, check this out, you've missed this before. Beginning with Moses... And with all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus held a little Bible study. The New Testament wasn't written. He said, let's start in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Suffering and glory, that was the theme of the Spirit's inspiration and that is why it will be the theme of the prophets searching as well. Notice that little uh, phrase there in verse 11. The spirit of Christ within them. The spirit took up residence within the writers of the Old Testament. The prophets. He took up residence in the apostles. That's why in 2 Peter also, chapter 1, verse 21 for no prophecy, prophecy, no prophecy, was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The, the, the word moved means carried along by the Spirit. And 2 Peter 1.21 is one of the most important verses in the New Testament. It's how we know how we receive Scripture and and what prophecy and revelation is, and what it is not. Moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. None was ever done by human will, but men moved by the Spirit, spoke from God. Before we move on, notice that, that word indicating in verse 11. The Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. He didn't take over them, and they were zombies and, you know, just writing things down and said, well, I don't know what happened. i got to look through this because the Spirit just took over and I didn't know what was going on. But the Spirit indicated to these godly men who honored God and testified to God for the glory of God, indicating, some of your Bibles may even say witnessing or, or pointing... And what it means is, is here was the Spirit indicating or testifying to a future salvation so that when they wrote, as 2 Timothy 3.16 puts it, it was God-breathed. Literally, breathed out by God. So you can trust your scriptures. What is the Spirit of Christ? Verse 11 is the Spirit of God. Before the incarnation, the Son existed as Spirit. God is Spirit, John 4, 24 says. And notice what it also says in verse 12, and really an amazing thing. It was revealed to them, to the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you. Now before we can apply it to ourselves, 
Peter has told us in the first two verses who he's writing to. He's scattered believers in Asia Minor. But it was revealed to them that their ministry was not for them is the point. The prophets knew they were writing for a people later. Not for them, not for their time. Which is kind of interesting because they're talking about something that's just coming in the future. And the benefit of this in its fullness would come to the nations. And the nations in the future. And it doesn't mean, again, that there was salvation. It simply means the fullness of all the blessing bound up in salvation was yet a future reality. Look at how blessed we are on this side of the cross today. Every believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit till the day of redemption. You have a sure, imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance, a salvation kept in heaven for you. You're blessed with the fruit of God's Spirit. We have the full canon of Scripture, the, the words of Christ's teaching literally in your lap. You can lay in bed and read the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. These just weren't realities for these men of old. We are blessed. And so Peter's purpose in this little paragraph is really to show these first century readers that the spiritual blessings they have now are greater than anything that was envisioned by the prophets or even the angels who longed to look. And though this great salvation God has provided is even better for us, Hebrews 11.39, even the prophets themselves, verse 12, realized they were not serving themselves but you. Just awesome. Point number three is a brief one. This great salvation was also the theme of the apostles' message. It was the theme of their preaching. Notice the second half of verse 12. It says, in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Let's stop right there. The Holy Spirit inspired not only the Old Testament prophecies and the prophets, but the New Testament apostles. And they're preaching. And what are these things which Peter mentions here in verse 12? The salvation grace which has now come through the suffering and the glory of the one promised to you by the Old Testament prophets. Peter is saying these things are now being announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you. Namely, the apostles. These things were referred directly to the who and the when. What person and what time are now being preached to you. And isn't that what the New Testament preachers did? Take, for example, the very first sermon Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. I'll read just a portion of it. Acts chapter 2, we'll start in verse 22. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, there's the who, a man attests to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know this Jesus delivered to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and now Peter is going to quote David's prophecy from Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he was at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter continues by saying, David wasn't talking about himself. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. That's the throne of David. 
He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he would not abandon to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that, Peter says, we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself, the Lord, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So what does Peter preach about at the launch of the church? The gospel, the prophecy of David that the Messiah, the Christ, must suffer and that his glories would follow. The Messiah came in order to die. He wasn't talking about David in these prophecies. You can go check. David's tomb is right over there. It's still got his bones in it. Jesus, who we've seen, walked out of that tomb. He's raised from the dead. His body did not go to corruption. He is at the right hand of the Father. And the Jews refused to listen to their own prophets. But God did not abandon his son, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up. And Peter's saying, we are all witnesses of this. The Messiah, the one that the prophets spoke of, he has come, he has risen. And not only have we seen him, but the outpouring of his spirit testifies to it. And this is part of the glories to follow that Peter talks about. And this Jesus whom you killed, not only was he raised from the dead, but now he is highly exalted to the right hand of the Father. And beloved, this is why we preach Christ and Christ crucified. This is the same message, whether from the prophets, the Spirit himself, the apostles of the New Testament, they preached this gospel. And notice the response in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. In 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Paul quotes Isaiah the prophet. He says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We are not guaranteed one hour from now. There's no guarantee you're going to wake up tomorrow. But God says, now is a perfect time. Now is an acceptable time. Jesus said, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy with laden, and I will give you rest. And so Peter here in verse 12 says, in these things, in these things, the who and the when, the details of the Old Testament prophecy of Christ are fulfilled, which now have been announced to you through those meaning us, who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And who is he talking about? Those who are the those? Well, back then it's Luke and Paul and Barnabas and Peter and Philip and the, John the apostles. They preached it. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing of you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul said, I am determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him what? 
crucified. And why did he preach Christ and Christ crucified? He tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That was their message. The apostles' preaching of the cross was their message. We close with this last short point. Number four, the great salvation is the theme of the angel's longing. I really love this. Peter just throws us at the end of verse 12. This is, this is pretty wild. Things into which angels long to look. What things is Peter talking about? The things concerning the suffering of the Messiah and the, the glories that would follow. All of which have to do with our great salvation. These are the things into which angels long to look. This is, this is really fascinating. I'm sure like most of you before, have you ever wondered you know, what it might be like to be an angel? To be up in the throne room of God? To be experiencing that worship? To do, be doing spiritual battle in the heavenlies? I mean, it's, it's got to be pretty wild. What do we know about angels? Scripture says they're God's messengers. You can read about that in Daniel 8 through 12. Those are great chapters. Uh, it also appears in those chapters in Daniel that they have specific territories. We uh, went through Daniel quite a few years ago. Daniel 10, they uh, oppose demons who are fallen angels. Where do the demons come from? They are the fallen angels. The ones who are in heaven, these angels, are also elected by God. God chose and elect angels. 1 Timothy 5, verse 21. But the holy angels here, Peter says, long to look. Why? What are they, what are they looking at? What, what are they curious of? Because they have essentially one main focus throughout their entire existence. And what is that? To glorify God to praise God, to exalt God, and I'm sure they feel maybe a little bit cheated because they know there is this massive redemption work that God has literally created a universe to accomplish and they can't personally understand it. So they long to look, you see. They long to experience personally that grace and that mercy that the Messiah accomplished and paid for on the cross. This word for long, used in a negative sense, can mean an, an evil lusting. You're, you're, you're longing for it obsessively. But here it is the idea of a, a, a strong, overwhelming, overpowering uh, passion, a desire that, that isn't fulfilled. They, they long. They have an unfulfilled longing to experience that grace that's talked about. And there's another interesting word here. They long to look. It means to stretch out your neck and to look. Now, since angels don't have necks, it's a metaphor. <laughs> it's uh, actually the same verb that is used to describe Peter and John when they go to the tomb to see the Christ is not there. And Peter and John go in and they, and they creep in and they, and they peek and they, they look. They look. But why do these uh, angels care? Well, they've been involved in the, the plan. They announced his coming, did they not? It was the angels. It was the angels, wasn't it, who went to uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth? It was the angels who went to Mary and, and to uh, Joseph? It was the angels who ministered to Jesus and his temptation. It was the angels who saw everything so much so that at any moment, Jesus, if he wanted to, could have called legions of them by his side. It was the angels who were at his ascension. Remember the disciples looked up and there were the angels. What are you looking at? Angels were involved all throughout the Lord's ministry but at no point were they the objects of Christ's mission. 
Beloved, it was not for them that he came. It was not for them that Christ humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It was not for them, beloved, that Christ bled and died and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. It was not for them that Jesus one day soon is returning forth. And though they will come with him on that great day, it has all been for you. He came for you. He bled for you. He uh, rose and rules and reigns for you. He's coming back for you. And in that respect, the angels peer in from the outside, longing to penetrate into the wonder of all what it must be like, they ask themselves, to be the recipient of such love and mercy and grace, a salvation that is so wonderful as this. And they long to know what you have. What a glorious salvation we have in Christ. I pray it consumes your heart as it did the Old Testament prophets the Holy Spirit, the New Testament apostles, and even the angels who long to know what it is that you have, this incredible reality of God's amazing grace. Please stand as we worship our Lord in anticipation for that glorious day of his return. Glorious day.